Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. This week, J.P. Nichols continues his exploration of the risks and opportunities in the global economy in balancing fraud and friction, recorded live in Las Vegas at Money 2020. We'll start in Latin America with Sergio Almaguer, founder and CEO of Jedu, which helps small businesses manage invoices, payables, receivables, and cross-border payments. Then, Misha Esipov from Nova Credit discusses how they're addressing the challenges of immigrants and expats getting credit in the U.S. Well, my name is Sergio Almaguer. I'm co-founder and CEO of Jedu, uh, and we help companies automate accounts payable and account receivable through uh, SaaS solutions that we distribute mainly in Mexico, but we're growing also in Latin America. All right, well, I want to start with the name. So Jadu, but yeah. pronounced or spelled Y-A-D-O-O. Y-A-Y-D-O-O. Y-A-Y-D-O-O. Yeah. Okay. And, and pretty much the the name is the, it, it, it means the pleasure of doing things and is the combination of the expression yay of happiness and do of doing. Right. So we, we started the company because we we realized that there is a lot of things in businesses that, that you know like people want to get done, but there are like some other more manual and repetitive things that no one wants to do. And when it comes about procurement or accounts payable, that is let's say w- where we started, is 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 it's an activity that is needed by businesses, but in the end like no one wants to do it. So we we were doing we're doing it for them, and that's we we are Jay doing it basically. Great. Well. And, and I want to talk, you were recently acquired by Paystand, so we'll talk about that. But yeah, l- but yeah let's back up and talk about the JDU story. So, so talk about what problem you're solving and why you're pursuing that opportunity. Okay. So we started uh, first by helping companies manage all the different vendors that they have. The, the original idea uh, was linked to the fact of having all your vendors in a single invoice, that you pay that invoice and then you pretty much, let's say, do the payout for everyone. That was the original idea. Uh, we went into that direction, like doing this kind of procurement concierge at the very beginning of, of, of the business. But then, uh, since the founding team had a lot of experience in SaaS and B2B payments, we ended up building a, a, a procurement platform that in the end is managing all the process from adding a vendor, creating a purchase request, upload workflows, until receiving uh, or sending a purchase order and receiving an invoice, doing that recon- reconciliation and then doing the payment. Focusing in Latin America, that's how we started. Uh, then we continue growing because we realized that vendors actually said, hey, this solution is great, but it has one problem. Uh, we can only receive digital payments from your customers. We cannot, let's say, like send invoices to all of our different it's customers. It's a closed loop system. Yeah. So, so, so in the end, we realized that there was a huge opportunity to start uh, providing value to those vendors and start uh, enabling uh, enabling B2B payments and sending invoices to their customers and also 
doing the collections. So that's how we went into from procurement an AP to actually doing some AR activity. And that's pretty much what uh, helped us to grow a lot. Like in 2020 is when we uh, launched the AR side of the business. And since it was launched together uh, with the pandemic and all the businesses were, let's say, trying to de-test activities because they were, they were not able to go, go to the office and want to, let's say, to have a place, to have a single source of truth, for example. So it is when the company really like started growing because a lot of companies started going remote and they turned it from their Excel spreadsheet into a SaaS solution. And that's pretty much where, where, where we like realized that there was a huge opportunity for continuous growing in, in, in Latin America. So partially in Latin America because you're from Mexico, um, yeah. but are there unique things about Latin, and when we say Latin America, that's already huge, <laughs> yeah. right? You, you've got a lot of regions and a lot of uh, countries and, and cultures in that, but, but uh, other than your familiarity, is there something unique about Latin America that, that has been your focus? So especially in the fact of the access to high quality digital solutions is something that is rather new let's say for the last i don't know like 7 10 years it is like this kind of revolution of a lot of digital services has uh, started in 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 latin america but it's quite new so there is this uh the newer generations that are managing businesses they are expecting these kind of experiences that are, let's say, very different to the, the solutions that existed before. So the, the status quo of Latin America until, let's say, five years ago, was, let's say, only desktop software. So SaaS still wasn't a thing. And uh, there, there, there's a huge opportunity of bringing all of, like, all the SaaS solutions and all the fintech solutions that you see in developed markets. They are really uh, generating this new expectation uh, in Latin America for Latin American businesses. So there is a, a huge opportunity to, to disrupt the market there, and specifically uh, in the context of fintech and, 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 and banks. Uh, Latin America is one of the regions where the companies have been highly underserved. Uh, where, the, the, where the banks have been, let's say, making a lot of margins uh, uh, with low-quality services. And that's margin why... margin is your opportunity. Yeah, specifically that, yeah. So that's why um, the, there, there is so much uh, things happening in fintech space in Latin America because the, the opportunity for disruption is huge. And also, like, the market is ready to uh, start using those kind of digital solutions. So you were recently acquired yeah. by Paystand. So talk a little bit about... Paystand and why they, they were acquired uh, JDU. Okay, so Paystand is a B2B payment network that uh, started, let's say, working on the account receivable side, uh, specifically con with uh, mid-market comp companies and growing a lot through the integration with ERP software. NetSuite, for example, is 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 is, is one of the uh, how can I say main channels that they use to or that Paystand uses to to to, to, distri to distribute the software. And the reason why there, there is a perfect fit between Payson and Jadu is because we pretty much have been growing from opposite sides of the, uh, of the story and kind of growing into the same direction, into a point that we realize that the complementarity is just a match made in heaven, if you want to put it like that, 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 that way. In the case of Payson, they started with AR and they continue growing more into AP. They've been uh, going to mid-sized mid companies, uh, so, some a bit larger. On our side, we started with procurement AP. We moved into AR, mostly focusing in SMBs, also focusing in Latin America, based on focusing in, 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 in the US. And both, we were like already having plans to start growing into different regions. So we understand that, for example, in order to conquer Latin America, it's not that you just 
uh, launch a U.S. product into Latin, uh, Latin America and expect it to, to win the market. That's something that many companies have tried and, and, and they don't do it because... And we'll continue to try and it'll continue to not work. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so pretty much when, when we can mix, you know, like the understanding of the Latin American market, the needs of the Latin American market with the technology that is built in the U.S. and all the innovation, because the, what is expected, let's say, from, uh, from customers in the U.S. is definitely higher than what is expected in, in Latin America. So uh, understanding the distribution in Latin America and uh, bringing that that, that, that that technology is just a huge opportunity. But also there is a lot of uh, a lot of capabilities that we have right now in Latin America, for example, access to uh, an engineering workforce that is uh, definitely less expensive than, than, than what you can find in, in other developed markets that can accelerate uh, product development, that can accelerate time to market. There is like a, a lot of opportunities to start bringing uh, those worlds uh, together and pretty much bringing all the experience uh, of the US and also all the capabilities that, that we also have in Latin America. And, and make a beautiful company out of that. Well, how did you find one another? So actually, uh, the half of the of the uh, of the team of Paysan is already in Mexico. They have an office in Guadalajara, and they have an office in Sonora. So when they opened the Guadalajara office, I got invited by one of the common investors, and that's pretty much where 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 where, where we met. And since the very beginning, we we were like kind of thinking about doing things together. And then as things continually uh, were uh, moving forward, we were having, let's say, regular updates, I don't know, like once per quarter or maybe twice a year or so. So we were like just like uh, keeping in contact with, 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 each, with each other until we realized that there was the right time to, to, to do it. So this is something that, that, that in the end, you know, like it's a relationship that actually like it started like more than two years ago. And, and in the end, like uh, the, the, the fact of knowing uh, Jeremy, that is the, the founder and CEO, uh, based on uh, that he is also half Mexican actually he, 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 his uh, mother is originally from, from from Mexico so having like this kind of uh, cultural fit is something that also helps a lot in allowing this kind of of, of, of uh, acquisition or, or, or this kind of join are you working or looking outside of the Americas so right now the objective is to uh, conquer the whole American continent uh, from the Payston side, is pretty much uh, U.S. and growing into Canada. On our side, the focus is Spanish-speaking Latam, because uh, Brazil, it's a... It, it, it's another it, it, whole thing. It's another Besides monster. Besides the language, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. another whole thing. Yeah, so, so that's why we're focusing in Spanish-speaking Latam, and, and after Mexico, Colombia is the, the, the largest and closest culturally and also in terms of needs. There is also something very interesting happening in Colombia that is similar to what happened around 10 years ago in Mexico, that is that electronic invoicing is becoming mandatory. So every company now it's has to mandatory. start... Yeah, by law. Yeah. So so that, that's that, that's something that, that already started a while ago in Mexico. So every invoice that you send in Mexico uh, has to be, let's say, digitally stamped by the Mexican government, like the, the Mexican IRS, let's say, is called SAT. And, uh, and, and, and that central database holds information of all the invoices of all businesses. And that's why there is also like a lot of opportunities uh, for, for doing uh, uh, like SaaS related to that central information of electronic invoices in, in, in Mexico. Th that's something that also happens in, in, in Brazil. They have the, like their own rules. Actually, both Mexico and Brazil are the two mo most complex electronic invoicing uh, systems in the world. Uh, and and uh, Colombia is just moving into uh, electronic invoicing. 
So that's that's also an opportunity for starting like digitizing a lot of a, a lot of the activities because if you think about it, most of the businesses uh, is, uh, don't let's say require by law uh, to let's say to 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 send electronic invoices. But now that that they need to do it, they start they have to use some kind of software or, or some or some kind of tool to start issuing those invoices. So that's uh, like this kind of external factor that is pushing businesses to be digitized uh, and formalized too. So that's that's uh, something that is uh, also an opportunity for all entrepreneurs to help these companies. So Paystand has also been uh, kind of a pioneer in blockchain and DeFi-based payments. Um, Is that something that you had been working on prior to this, or will that be new uh, with this acquisition? So definitely, like, we've been uh, uh, working in the sense of bringing that technology also to to, to Latin America. We're at at the very uh, beginnings of this, and uh, what I can say is that there is a huge opportunity because when you think about... Uh, blockchain-based uh, B2B payments. Um, there, there are huge opportunities in how uh, all the information, like uh, via blockchain, is more open to everyone. How the reconciliation is faster. How we can also like uh, work into other kind of DeFi solutions that allow, for example, moving money on chain and start like enabling other kind of finan- alternative financing opportunities. Uh, uh, I, I see a huge opportunity for cross-border payments too, uh, and we're just getting started on that. So what is important to say here is that. While there are companies that are, let's say, building solutions like directly in a specific for, for example, cross-border payments or, 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 or something like that, what we have is the network on both sides. So we have the network of businesses both in the U.S. and the network of businesses in LATAM. So we are starting first by digitizing the activities of how they send and receive invoices, how they pay and collect those invoices, and then we start like, to connect the, the nodes, like to start building this network that, 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 that is going to be uh, based on blockchain because in the end like if you think about traditional uh, uh, rails or traditional uh, ways that, that money flows between countries is one of the largest opportunities that are there. Well especially once you start talking cross-border right? yeah. cross-currency and all of that. Now will that um, be better or worse with the uh, regulations in Mexico and, and Colombia? Are, are they prepared for DeFi? So specifically uh when, when you think about how money flows locally, uh, so of course, like all the regulations are going to be applied and how uh, the, the money flow, let's say, in, in, like inside the local financial system. And I don't, uh, I, I believe that there is a lot of work to be done to start let's say, c- kind of pushing that in a different direction because, of course, the what the government is bringing and all the regulations, like the, the, there are many reasons to do it. Uh, many of them are linked to money laundering, for example. Uh, so, 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 so in the end, definitely, like. Uh, there is a good reason to to, 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 to try to, to formalize everything. But when you think about, let's say, moving money between countries or when you think about other kind of uh, use cases, for example, reconciliation or, or start, let's say, moving money between, between accounts or creating closed loops, in the end, let's say, uh, when you think about money moving on chain, in the end, money becomes software and it's just a number that is... Uh, being balanced or netted, let's say, between different accounts from 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 from, from businesses that, that already do business together. Right. And as long as these businesses are okay moving money from one side to the other and don't want to put it inside the traditional uh, financial system, in the end, that that, that that will work. I believe the more 
uh, companies accept or use like these kind of blockchain networks uh, in the end are going to enable uh, like a, an alternative uh, kind of exchange or an alternative uh, uh, economy that doesn't have to go through the through the financial system as long as businesses end up like accepting it. If they want to let's say pay something to a company that is not that still did did not let's say or, or still is not accepting or or still is not part of this network, in the end of course like uh, we cannot do anything with that and we have to like be part of the traditional financial system. But as long as companies accept and are let's say fully digitized and are okay we, uh, uh, we can do all like realize all the all the all, all the values that that we can do with with a blockchain about how we reconcile payments how we can like move money with a lower fees in in instantly so in the end there's a lot of things that, that can be done but the first change is not about the government it's about companies actually like transitioning into this uh, payment networks. Yeah, it, it's a bit of a future <laughs> but the, play, right? And, and something that, that, that is interesting is when you think about how innovation has been happening in emerging markets, like, like speaking specifically about the case of, of Latin America, um, it is it, it's very interesting to, 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 to see that many times there is this kind of leapfrog in innovation where 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 people or companies kind of have a status quo like use case or, or tools that they use and and then there is this new innovation that comes that kind of brings everyone like 10 years in the future similar to what happened to consumer payments in africa for example that, that they that they went directly say from cash to to pay to, yeah. to, to, to pay with the phone for example uh i believe something like this is happening right now with b2b payments in latin america because the the, the 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 traditional way that money is is flowing is so much worse than all the new solutions that we can bring and i believe like if you go and so so businesses are very how can you say sensitive to the margins that they have to pay or the commissions that, that, that they have to pay for moving money or the interest rates of the loans that they get so the more we can provide innovative financial services that are happening or enabled by blockchain is how we're going to be moving all, the, all those companies into this new future. And I believe that in, 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 in the end, it will be more difficult for developed countries to kind of move everyone into this direction because the status quo is not, is not great, but it's not so bad compared to how it is in emerging markets. That's, that's exactly the key, right? Leapfrogging happens when there's sufficient gain uh, over what you're doing today. Yeah. Brett always talks about, you know, why are we still carrying pieces of plastic around in our wallet? Yeah. <laughs> because it isn't that bad, right? It works. We all have it. We have an infrastructure around yeah. it. If you don't have an infrastructure around it, you're going to be more willing to adapt mm. something else. And I, I think business payments, I, I, I'm super fascinated with all things B2B, um, but payments in particular, because blockchain is maybe not an ideal solution for consumer payments, right? The, Definitely. the ability to do... The, the cost of pressing in the end is something that you also have to consider. And the speed, and right? The, speed the, and the number yeah, of yeah. transactions. Yeah. But when so, so when we're talking about, you know, multiple seconds versus milliseconds, but 
in B2B when we're talking about days you know days and day and yeah. maybe into months yeah. um, of receiving and being able to do that faster at a much lower relative cost close to zero yeah um, it it's a big difference right yeah no no and that, that, that that's why there is uh, like so many applications that, that that in the end can really transform how businesses transact and behave because it, it's not only about the rail and about the speed of doing it but it's also like the the, the fact of when you have like everything like recorded and when you have this like like there's a lot of activities that where there is people doing these manual repetitive activities that no one wants to do but you have to do because in the end you have to reconcile everything because you have to like understand how your taxes are going to be working because you have to blah 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 so in, in the end there's a lot of activities that in the end uh, if money is just software that in the end can be automated and, and, and simplified. So Paystand just made another acquisition with Oyster. Talk a little bit about what Oyster does and, and why that acquisition. Yeah. So specifically, uh, when we speak about Oyster, it's a company that uh, was founded by uh, Vilash Povala. Vilash was the founding CTO at Clip. Clip is one of the largest uh, mobile payment, uh, uh, let's say, tools in, in Mexico. So think about Square, but in, in, in Mexico. So and he so he has a lot of payments experience. <coughs> Oyster originally was founded like a, as a as a product to enable debit cards and credit cards for 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 for, for, for SMBs, and then moving more into payments specifically, like start start like enabling payment links. So the reason why is is, is relevant specifically Oyster is because when we think about all the payment links and how they are helping us digitize businesses, in the end there is a very strategic go-to-market that we can achieve uh, thanks to Oyster. Specifically, when uh, and it's a fact about enabling payment uh, or uh, embedded payment links inside ERPs and accounting software. If you think about, let's say, all this change and transition that I was mentioning before about electronic invoicing, companies require. Uh, some kind of tool that allow them to send electronic invoices, but not 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 all electronic invoices already have, let's say, a payment link embedded. And the way to end, like to to start going faster into the market and digitizing payments is uh, uh, one of the ways of doing it is through those electronic invoices. And if we are embedding those payment links inside the electronic invoices that are generated by the accounting software or the billing software or or, or the ERP. Uh, is how we can reach those uh, customers. So, so, so in the end, it's kind of a high-speed avenue to start going into that segment of the market, and including point of sale. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so, so in 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 the end, something that is important is when you think about the, for, for example, SMBs in 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 Latin America. The large majority are not digitized. The large majority are still not processing payments. But uh, around 20% of all the SMBs are already like digitized in the sense that they are sending electronic invoices, um, and uh, in order to like a way to get through them is, is is pretty much by these payment links and and making all of them merchants and start pressing payments. Great. Well, uh, that was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and anything I didn't ask you that you uh, want to make sure we talk about. So specifically about the the uh, how like in the end blockchain can also like be so transformative in 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 Latin America. I know that we like I already mentioned something about it, but it's uh, very interesting to see how there are, let's say countries with very uh, how can you say 
with financial systems that in the end are very volatile, like the case of Venezuela or El Salvador, that in the end are, are pretty much kind of like kind of the people themselves are kind of pushing forward and moving forward. Uh, like blockchain alternatives because the, the the traditional system is so bad. So 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 in the end, uh, like just kind of like uh, uh, like to 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 share to the audience like how when things are bad, in the end is like uh, just the opportunity of, of, of doing something great, and specifically emerging markets and, and, and Latin America for B 2 B payments. I, 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 I'm sure is the the single most important place in the world to make this transformation. Talk for just a quick minute. You mentioned El Salvador. Uh, they, they made a famous big bet into Bitcoin. Yeah. But blockchain's a lot more than, yeah, than of Bitcoin. Course. So kind of what's happened there and where do you think it goes from here in El Salvador? So this is like still a small step uh, like for, 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 for the big change that is uh, required because even if you make Bitcoin, let's say, a legal tender and start like uh, making official for, let's say, for for for, for enabling payments, there is a, a still like some uh, more important transformational and social change that needs to happen to actually, let's say, make sure that everyone is going to be using that solution. So, so it, it definitely it is important that at the government level and at the regulation level it is possible and, and it is enabled but there is also like this kind of enablement in terms of uh, providing access to all the digital solutions like to, to the people so they can actually benefit from this uh, regulation so in the end it, uh, I'm, I'm convinced that this is, is something that is needed that we have to walk into that direction but it's only one of the ingredients of the whole transformation that, that, that requires to be done because uh, if in the end the people cannot actually use it because don't have access to the digital tools or whatever. So in in, in the end, is not going to have the impact that everyone is 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 expecting to 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 happen. Great. Uh, well, thanks for being here, Sergio. Thank you very much. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet. But we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. All right. We'll start by introducing yourself. Just jump right in. Jump right in. Um... Yeah, my name is Mish Chesapov. I'm uh, one of the co-founders of Nova Credit um, and really excited to be here. Well, glad to have you. Well, tell us about Nova Credit. I mean, what are you focused on? What problems are you solving? 
Yeah, so millions of folks move to the United States every year, and uh, when they first arrive, they need to get a place to live, a open up a bank account, get a cell phone, get a credit card. They may need an auto loan or lease. Uh, there are a variety of basic financial services that they need upon arrival. Uh, but by virtue of having just uh, arrived here, they don't have any U.S. credit history. And so when they apply for those services, uh, they're effectively locked out of the U.S. credit system uh, and have to struggle with being able to get those basic uh, products unlocked. And so we've spent the better part of a decade now uh, making it possible to, for folks to, to come here and get approved for the products they need from the moment they arrive. So how do you do that? Um, so the, the core of what we do uh, is called the, the credit passport. Uh, and effectively what we've done is uh, we have aggregated the world's credit reporting system. So what does that mean? So though you, you're all you know you're all probably familiar with Experian, Equifax, TransUnion, the big credit bureaus here in the US. Uh, they exist around the world, they have competitors around the world. And basically what we've done is we, we've, we've flown around the world, we've built partnerships with the leading credit bureaus in every one of these markets. Uh, we've built data integrations into those markets. Uh, and we allow for an individual's financial identity, their credit history, to compliantly, instantly, uh, in one standardized format, to make its way here into the United States uh, to support uh, a credit application here. So, for example, uh, if you uh, just moved to New York from London and you want to apply for, uh, you know, let's say, an American Express credit card, uh, you may have no credit history here in the United States, uh, but you would be able to use, in that case, you know, your Equifax UK history to get instantly approved for a card uh, once you get here in the United States. So does that require you, in that example, having a partnership with American Express so that they're able to um, receive and utilize your data? That's right. Yeah. So American Express kind of think, thinks of us as a global credit bureau. So the same way that they have you know, relationships with various data providers and credit bureaus here, we are one of those that you know, is really the world's only provider of cross-border credit bureau data. So who else have you partnered with? Don't read the entire list, but give, give me an idea of the, the, the kinds of uh, partners, uh, it, particularly around credit passports. Yeah, so I mean, you can think of us uh, a little bit as like a two-sided marketplace in a way. Where on our on our supply side, we think about partners as credit bureaus all around the world that we're partnered with. So today, we have connectivity in about 20 different countries. So uh, India, Mexico, Canada, the UK, Australia, Nigeria, Brazil, um, Philippines, and, and, and a number more. And so, in aggregate, we can access credit bureau data uh, on over one and a half billion consumers all around the world. And that uh, connectivity allows us to serve uh, the majority of the annual inflows of, uh, of folks that are moving here, um, whether it be for work or for education or for, or for, for, for family reasons. Um, and then the other side of our market is really the distribution side. So, you know, I mentioned our relationship with American Express. Um, not too long ago, we had an announcement with Verizon uh, where, you know, the credit passport is now being used to uh, unlock devices and device financing. Uh, and you can walk into, you know, any of uh, Verizon's 1500 retail locations and use the capability, even if you have no financial identity here. Uh, we also recently had a, a, an exciting global announcement with, uh, with HSBC uh, where we're taking this capability with the credit passport uh, and, uh, and deploying deploying it all around the world in service of migrants moving to Singapore and moving to other major expat markets. So you're embedded then in these service providers. Do you also go direct to the consumers? If, if I moved here from another country, do I search out Nova Credit and say, oh, now I can use this to do things I need to do? Or is it more, it's going to come up when I go to Verizon, when I go to MX? It's, it's, it's both. So we really started first by you know enabling uh, some of the largest financial solutions in the world to embed our capability within their application to give this population of folks the ability to 
um, you know, insert more information into their credit application process. Uh, and in doing so, create a, create a more complete picture of who they are and allow a lender to make a more fair uh, and informed lending uh, lending decision. Separate from that, consumers can come directly to us. You could go on, you know, online and Google, you know, best credit card for immigrants, and we're going to be on that list. And we create a, a whole curriculum and content around best practices of, you know, how to build credit in America and how to accelerate and jumpstart your journey of integrating into this country. And through that, we will also, you know, recommend some of the best partners and products out there for this segment. So I'm imagining neither side of that marketplace is easy. Um, they're both they're diff different kinds of hard. Um, where, where have you had kind of the biggest challenges and biggest successes so far? Yeah, I, w I wish someone told me back uh, when we started the company that building a cross-border credit bureau, you know, would, would, would be as hard as it has been. Um, I mean, it, it takes a, a healthy dose of uh, naive optimism to, uh, to to take on this challenge. But I mean, there's a whole host of, of, of complexities and regulatory challenges and data definition challenges um, that you have to navigate. I mean, on, on the supply side, working with credit bureaus can be very complex, um, to put it lightly. And we work with more credit bureaus, to my knowledge, than any company in the world at this point, partnering with all of the big ones, as well as a variety of independent small players uh, all around the world. Uh, you know, that we solved most of that problem, you know, I'd say a few years ago. Um, and now the big challenge remains, you know, selling selling to banks. And for those of you who work at a bank or work at a fintech that are tuning in, it's quite hard to to sell to you, um, you know, for for a variety of reasons. Um, but we're, that's a whole other episode. That's a whole episode. <laughs> we, we could spend talking talking yeah. through that. Um, but you know, it's uh, we're really we've been really excited and and um, and are feeling incredibly. Um, uh, lucky that we've got a lot of tailwinds right now in the business. The macro environment is back. Immigration's back. Immigration drives the majority of U.S. population growth. So there's more folks who move to the U.S. every year than there are Americans who turn 18 and become eligible for financial services. If you look at, you know, cities like San Francisco, 30% foreign-born, uh, L.A. and New York, almost 40 or just over 40% foreign-born. And so this is a must-have segment to be able to continue to win, to be able to grow your book of business. Well, yeah, that whole, I mean, that is the holy grail question, right? Where's the growth going to come from? And how do you ad address that, right, for the, the traditional financial service players? So speaking of that, you've announced a partnership with HSBC. What's that look like and, and what's that solving? Yeah, so a uh, big announcement for us has been, you know, dare I say, a couple years in the making, if not, if not longer at this point. But um, the, the core of that relationship is we're taking this credit passport capability where we've got connections in uh, roughly 20 different countries around the world, and we're making all of that global connectivity available to serve migrant corridors destined around the world. So uh, if you're someone moving from India to Dubai or Nigeria to London or... Um, you know, the Philippines to Singapore, those are major immigrant corridors where the same basic problem exists, which is there is an information asymmetry. Data exists in one economy, in one market, in one data system, and doesn't exist in another. And so by being able to deploy the credit passport into these markets and, and more, we're able to support HSBC's customers with, with getting the best product uh, they, uh, they could get approved for, improving their line assignment, improving the overall value proposition uh, of, you know, across cards, across mortgages, across personal loans, and, and, and more. 
Um, and so that, that relationship is one we're incredibly excited about. Um, as part of that relationship, we also took a strategic investment from HSBC. So we brought in some more capital to further accelerate our ability to deliver on an international rollout, which is uh, not for the faint of heart. No. You talk about the asymmetry of data across different markets and different countries. Are you or is anybody working on trying to standardize that? Or is that just always going to be your job to be the translator in the middle of everything? I think we have taken on the, the, the duty of, of being that global translation layer. Um, so to my knowledge, we're the only company that can look at a credit report from Sybil TransUnion India and uh, transform that and make it look and be decisioned on the same way as a Equifax UK report or an Experian Brazil report or an independent bureau from Nigeria and I'll normalize all of that into one set of data definitions that can be used and decisioned upon in a uh, FCRA in a co-compliant manner here in the United States. So that's us. We, we are the cross-border credit bureau. We've sort of spent the better part of a decade now proving that out and, and you know building a moat around that business and really getting this this company off the ground. And from that base, we're starting to uh, build out additional products like like the Cash Atlas. Well, let's come back to the Cash Atlas because I want to talk about that. But I also want to ask, what about beyond the credit bureaus and alternative data? How, how are you utilizing, uh, other than you know the equivalent of Experian in another country, what other kind of data points are you gathering and looking at? So we're spending a lot of time with bank transaction data. So open banking, bank transaction data, you know, the, the information that exists in someone's, um, you know, checking account, uh, that really is the, uh, we think, an incredible, uh, ha has an incredible wealth of information in it. Um, you know, you see uh, a change in a consumer's financial health far earlier by looking inside their bank account, uh, by looking at a, you know, a change in their income profile, their deposit um, history, by looking at you know, change in their expense uh, profile. You know, is it recurring? Is it not? Is it trending up? Is it trending down? What's going on with their cash balance? Do they, you know, do they, how often do they have NSFs or insufficient funds? Um, and you know, our view is you can, you can get a clearer and more current picture of someone's financial health in their bank account prior to being able to do so by looking at their credit bureau. Uh, and so it was that sort of long-term view that ultimately led us to creating the, ca the Cash Atlas, which is our uh, first big bet in the world of alternative data. All right, well, so talk about that. What, what, what is that and what opportunity does that address? Yeah, so um, using cash flow-based underwriting, we view is, is the sort of the next frontier for uh, the credit risk space, especially for for consumer underwriting, um, you know, we think that the bureaus have done have done a good job of building a great data asset and helping, you know, create visibility into a lot of consumers. But over 50 million Americans still have a fairly thin file with very limited information, which the vast majority of lenders that they may apply for don't have the sophistication or know-how uh, for how to underwrite. And it's precisely for those that are sort of more new to credit or have limited credit histories where this product can be absolutely transformational, where by giving a consumer, whether they be an immigrant or just a regular everyday American, it's really for anyone that has a U.S. bank account, by giving them the tools to credential access into that account, by letting them log into that account, uh, they can unlock a wealth of information that can use that they can then use to uh, that the lender can then use to create a more complete picture of who they are and in doing so have a better uh, understanding of being able to say yes what's that journey like getting those lenders to accept that additional data right? we, we, we understand how to read a credit bureau we understand credit scores um, you're bringing some new data points in here how, 
How do you get traction around something new like that? The same way we did with the credit passport. I mean, it's uh, we're operating in, in in the world of you know what we think we've helped coin, which is consumer permissioned uh, credit data, um, and so that is the credit passport, where you know through a consumer's express and voluntary consent, they're permissioning us to act on their behalf, unlock more data, and insert that data in a compliant manner into a decision. And the same thing is that's the same thing that we're doing with Cash Atlas, where a consumer is permissioning access for us to go and access their bank data and inserting that into uh, into a credit application. And there's a whole host of challenges that emerge in you know working with banks and risk teams and compliance teams and user experience teams, um, all challenges that we have now successfully navigated with you know at scale uh, partners, some of, some of which I've already mentioned um, but maybe just like one concept to hone in on is you know in the credit risk world everyone is accustomed to doing this thing called a retro study where you know you're going to want to go and do a statistically significant analysis to look back at a, a back test and know with you know high degree of confidence of exactly how much you know business impact and lift you're going to you're going to see and the very nature of consumer permissioned data is that you need the consumer to give you access to that information. And that is uh, that is like uh, incongruent with the traditional ways of doing retros. And so you ultimately have to uh, build the organizational buy-in to test your way into this kind of data source. And that's how we did it with, you know, with the Credit Passport and our work with American Express and some of the others. And it's through, you know, starting to get more and more comfortable with information and finding ways to do that with a more limited, you know, credit box that you can uh, get greater confidence in being able to unlock the true power of this kind of information. So is this all consumers or are you doing small business as well? Pure consumer right now. Vision towards that in the future? I mean, it's a whole other animal. <laughs> yeah. right? I get it. Uh, we see we see a lot of opportunity on the small business side. I, I think you know, as a relatively uh, small organization, we gotta we gotta pick our battles. And sure. So far, we've we've chosen to focus our energy, our resources on solving challenges of financial access for consumers. Uh, I'd love to be in a position in you know a couple of years time to be able to say, and next you know next is small business. Sure. But for now, we think there's an incredible amount to do just on the consumer side. Certainly, you know another theme that's come up in recent conversations. Um, we we can't do anything you're talking about without identity verification. How how are you handling that? Yeah. So on with respect to the credit passport, we actually bump into challenges of identity uh, all the time because these these are folks who. Uh, who don't have an identity here in the United States, right? When they arrive here and apply to open up a checking account, uh, you know, the bank is going to check the U.S. bureaus and the U.S. bureaus are going to say, we don't know who this is. Like, they don't even have a header file for identity purposes and LexisNexis and some of the others don't know who this segment is. And so we've developed creative solutions that allow U.S. lenders to uh, use the credit passport and check a you know the leading identity and credit bureau database of that foreign country and rely on that information for purposes of satisfying U.S. KYC and SIP and Bank Secrecy Act type of challenges, um, and so that that's really an, a core part of our innovation, where someone that has no identity here and can you know credential themselves in a foreign database and for that to allow them to open up their first account here in the U.S. Are you using any biometric data? Um, not yet. No, not, nothing, nothing there yet. But we're really excited about that space. We've seen some really, uh, really promising new, new entrants there, uh, some of which we're exploring ways to, to partner with. Great. 
Well, what else do you want to make sure we talk about? You know, a lot, lot going on in this space, and, and you've, you've got a lot of things going on at Nova Credit. I mean, it's just a, it's an exciting time right now. I think the, the industry has talked a lot about alternative data and underwriting, uh, and the availability of that information is just becoming more, more, more easily accessible, accessible in a more... Uh, standardized manner, uh, you know, proven to have been successfully used in a compliant manner, and I'm just really excited to uh, to be able to continue to create great products that help people who very much need a range of financial services to be able to enter the financial system. Great, that was good. Okay, so, we'll keep right. it punchy there. Great. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, great. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media, or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, That helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.